Today we have what I think is one of the most beautiful understandings of the human condition and your life. And the, the beautiful understanding is this. Uh, you are ultimately a lucky fucker. FKR. Lucky fuckers. When people ask me what will be written on my tombstone, I have no, no shadow of doubt that on the plaque, wherever I'm buried, up in the Himalayas, with all my ashes thrown to the ocean and to the sky, will be written, Walker, the lucky fucker. I've thought it, I've believed it ever since the day I was brought on this planet. I've lived it through every single beating that I got as a child. I've lived it through five divorces. I've lived it through spinal surgery, kidney surgery. I've lived it through uh, severe concussion. I've, severe, I've lived it through four bankruptcies that didn't go legal bankruptcies, but where I lost all my money. And I still, every single day, woke up going, I'm a lucky fucker. Sometimes I was lucky because I <coughs> took another breath. Sometimes I was lucky because I met somebody else. Sometimes I was lucky because uh, when I was uh, 16, I found a book, Paul Ehrlich, I think it was, and it was um, ecology, the ecology of the planet. And it was talking about how if we keep consuming things at the rate we're consuming them, uh, the planet can't continue to exist. It's a very, it was a, written in the hippie times, but it was a most profound study and scientifically proven. And I was lucky. I found this book. It changed everything. I was really lucky when I was 18 years old. I'd failed high school. Failed. Failed high school. Because in those days, English was a critical part of the graduation process from matriculation, the HSC, and I got 49% for English. Some bastard marked my paper, 49%, imagine that. And therefore, no matter what I got for science and mathematics and all the s subjects that I was a genius in, I was called a fail because of 49% in English. And so I didn't get into uni. And so I started a job working for the Electricity Commission of Victoria as an engineer's assistant. And that was an apprenticeship of sorts. And my job at the end would be walking around the streets uh, with, a, with a shoulder bag, uh, going into people's houses, finding out how much electricity uh, they used. Um, and my job would ultimately be repairing the machines that went, went into people's houses. So I would be an engineer's assistant. And I would spend the rest of my born life working for the Electricity Commission of Victoria on a nice salary. And a beautiful job it was. And I had a panel van that I used to go surfing with, wishing one day to meet somebody so I could go shagging in the back of my panel van like everybody said would happen. I even put curtains and a mattress in there so it would be comfortable when I finally met somebody. And finally, one day I did, I met Anne. And I'd known Anne for a kissy-kissy, smoochy-smoochy when I was in high school in year four, the fourth year high school, which is, I think, what they call these days, uh, year 10. We did a kissy, she, she went to a private school. 
And I didn't see much of Anne for two years through my fifth, uh, fifth and sixth years of high school, year 11 and 12. But when I turned 18, I contacted Anne. I said, how are you going? She goes, well, I'm studying uh, two degrees at university. I'm doing arts um, and law. Uh, she said, I got into both, so I'm doing both. I said, wow, would you like to go out? And she said, yes. And so Anne and I went out a couple of times, and finally we went to a pizza joint down in South Yarra, and uh, it was called Popper's Pizza back in those days, and you could eat as much pizza, and there was band playing, and it was, it was near Chapel Street, on the corner of Chapel Street and Tuak Road, just near there. And uh, Anne and I got really drunk on rosé, and in those days, drunk driving wasn't so bad as it is now. And I happened to be at that time staying at my sister's house in Turak. And so, and my sister was away. So I brought Anne back to the house. And before we got in the house, I thought, oh, look, uh, you know, it's a bit risky. Why don't we climb in the back of the van? And Anne agreed. We climbed in the back of the van and we started to get undressed. And Anne was a virgin and I was pretty much that way. I had much experience in this, uh, this realm. And just about when we were about to start, she puked everywhere <laughs> back of my car. She projectile vomited up into the ceiling all over my curtains on my nice new mattress everywhere in the back of my car and puked. It was not a pretty sight. So I flipped open the tailgate she got out, she was, apart from her panties around her knees, she was pretty, totally in the buff. We redressed her with her dirty puke-covered clothes, jumped her back in the car, uh, closed all the doors and, and uh, drove her all the way, while I was still drunk as a skunk, I drove her all the way out to Nanawadi, where her parents lived, and drove up in the driveway. And when we got to the driveway, it, we were late and later than that she'd promised her parents. Her parents were waiting outside, and Anne got out of the car, and her parents, who were professors at a university, swore and cussed at me and told me what an animal I was, and there she was with her little underpants on and all the dirty clothes wrapped around her arm and told me never to come back and never to see Anne again. It was a terrible end to what I thought would, would have going to be the, the future of my life. I was in love with Anne. She was a hero to me. But during the process of being with Anne over these three or four dates, Anne had said to me, what's your job? And I go, I'm an engineer's assistant working for Electricity Commission. And she goes, you're much smarter than that. And I go, well, I failed matric. And she said to me, no, you can go next year as a mature age student one year later, um, in f even though you failed. So Anne filled out six application forms for me. Together, she filled them out and I had to sign them. And in the same process, she filled out a form for an application for a grant from the government at the time. Now, don't tell anyone about this because I never paid it back. But application for a grant from the government to, as a loan to get me through school. And I got rejection, 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 acceptance. By the time I'd broken up with Anne, by the time our relationship ended in disaster, uh, I ended up ha being accepted into probably one of the lowest of the universities of Melbourne's environment, Swinburne Tech. Because I got in, uh, in, 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 uh, 
in, and I was wanting to do electrical, but I ended up doing mechanical. Because I got into a electri a mechanical engineering, and because I got into Swinburne Tech, the Vietnam draft came up. I wasn't on it because I, I was allowed to finish my engineering degree before I would go in the draft for Vietnam. And so I dodged a bullet. While I went to this uh, Swinburne and I gave up the engineering job, my father was distraught. I found a little uh, uh, completely derelict building. I rented it to live in, a house in Hawthorne. I think it was called Hawthorne Road. It, it, it's halfway along Glenferry Road. And it was this derelict place. It was shocking and it stinked. And we got half the house, actually. The other half was already occupied. So I went by myself and got this place. And I paid cash with part of the loan for the, for the deposit, the bond, and boom, I'm in this junk bond place. And then a mate of mine needed somewhere to stay, and he came and moved in and helped me pay the rent, good old Raphael. And, on, and, and life started. And the garage on the corner needed their cars, because they were, had a car cleaning thing, and they used to sell a couple of cars on the on the uh, platform of the petrol station and I said to them if you need a car detail clean because my dad was a car yard and I used to clean all his cars I can uh, cut and polish and detail a car better than anybody you know so I bought a buffer and I bought all the product and I became their regular go-to and I earned enough money from that to fund quite a, a significant existence um, with this life and here I was going to uni, even though I failed, and was gone. I had a loan to pay the bills, and boom, I'm down in the uh, 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 Great Ocean Road, and there's a couple of girls hitchhiking. I'm with three mates, Raphael, the, the, my flatmate included, and we picked up these two girls hitchhiking. As we go along, it's not very long before they're smooching in the back with my two mates, and my panel van gets, uh, gets to be used by two young girls uh, 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 and two young boys in the back, and I'm driving. And I'm going, boo-hoo, pull me, I'm in the front. It's called an orgy. Uh, um, uh, an orgy, an, different to an orgy and an orgy. Uh, an orgy is when five guys and five, uh, three guys and three girls drive along the road, all meet together and all have sex. An orgy is when three guys and two girls uh, meet together and two guys and two girls enjoy themselves, and the driver drives along going, oh, gee, oh, gee, oh, gee. Anyway, long story short, Raphael broke up. Uh, Raphael stayed with the girl he was with in the back, but uh, um, Brian, the guy, my other mate in the back, uh, Paul, other guy in the back, didn't really connect with the woman in the back. And six weeks later, Raphael said, would you like to double date? And... I double dated, and that happened to be Judy, uh, and Judy became six weeks after that moved into my building and became my wife for thirteen years. She moved out of home. She eloped out through the bedroom window, uh, in complete disgust at her parents, and they disowned her. And she moved in with me, and we were together for thirteen years. We had three children and three beautiful children, all because of Anne. And next thing you know, I'm doing this uni course and I'm there on day one and I'm studying, studying and I met this guy, a uh, red-haired guy, and he was really cool. And he says, do you need part-time work and I, over the Christmas break? And I go, shit, yeah, I love it. He says, I, I work for um, a, a, a sheet metal shop. And I went there 
and I became uh, like I cleaned up the floor. But I also uh, was at uni, had to study drafting. And so I started studying drafting, uh, drawing, you know, engineering drawing. Uh, and I started doing that in the company uh, to, as part of my pay. And this company made air filtration systems. It was called SLY, S-L-Y. And I, I fell in love with the whole science of doing air pollution control because that was their business. And I met a guy called Ron Purvis. And Ron was the general manager of sales in this guy, company called SLY. Anyway, they made air pollution systems. I started drafting air pollution systems. At uni, they said, you have to do a, a thesis. And I said, I'd like to do a thesis on air pollution systems and design what they call a gravity bed filter, which is, means you put gravel down and you put hot cement dust through this thing. It's flaming hot. And the gravel actually catches the dust and clean air comes out the bottom. So I designed one. I built a prototype in the sheet metal shop and I won my engineering degree with great flagging honours with a patent, which I sold back to Sly for a dollar. But now in the world, there is a patented gravel bed filter in cement factories working perfectly fantastic. Why? Because of Anne. So I started working there and I fell in love with this business, the business of bag filters, air pollution control, industrial hygiene, how to change the world. And of course, it goes back to Paul Ehrlich's book when I was 16 about you can't keep polluting the world the way you are, you can't keep consuming the world. And so Paul Ehrlich's book just came to life in this job, in this factory, sweeping floors and doing drafting, doing a prototype, uh, using talcum powder into a filter and living, uh, uh, studying at uni and living in a derelict house with Judy who was working for OPSM. And I said to her, man, you're better than that, just like Anne said to me. And she goes, yeah, I know, but that's all I could get. And I was working from home. I said, you love children, you love babies, why don't you do a kindergarten degree? And so she got into kindergarten college. I funded her the whole way through with this part-time job cleaning cars, which kept going, the work in the factory, doing design with Sly, doing uh, 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 this patent and studying engineering uh, process. And in the engineering degree, I get this, meet this guy called um, uh, Williamson. And he's a big, tall, deep voice guy. And he becomes the thermodynamic teacher, which is a lot to do with air pollution control because it's airflow and aerodynamics. And I fell in love. And finally, Williamson, it turns out, is Australia's greatest playwright. And he's written hundreds of plays and, you know, The Boys, and he wrote even a, a, a play about Swinburne College and the hierarchy of it while I was there. And I used to go to his house in Warrandyte and have coffee and tea and talk about philosophy and life and air pollution and survival. And, oh, David Williamson is, a, is just such a cool dude. Anyway, I got to know him and then I finished. The degree went on and on and on and I kept working for Sly and they gave me a full-time job at Christmas. At the end of my degree, uh, I didn't want to work for them. I got a... Uh, I, I put in an application form and I've, I got the job as air pollution control manager for Australian Portland Cement Geelong. And I went, shit, this is a dream come true. Really high pay and it's in air pollution control. And I love Geelong because it's just before the a Great Ocean Road where I used to go surfing and I was patrol captain at Jan Jack and we used to go to uh, Aries Inlet and we had a house there. Uh, with some friends and man I was in paradise so we moved to Geelong and I turn up at the front and Judy finished her degree 
in kindergarten teaching. She immediately got a job in uh, Newtown, I think, a pretty rough old suburb, but she got a, a really lovely job in a kindergarten. And so we're all established, she's working. I start work, I go to work in my new suit and they say, who are you? And I go, Chris Walker. And they go, no, Chris Walker's already in the office. And the general manager of the plant came out and said, oh my God, the secretary sent two letters to two Chris Walkers, you're the wrong one. I had no job. Oh shit, but I'm in Geelong. And I'm going, Jesus Christ, you've got no money. I'm paying a rent on this little apartment that we've got down there. Judy's working. I'm oh, bloody jobless. And so I, I opened a paper and boom, there is a job on the production line, on the production line at the Ford Motor Company of Geelong. On the production line, I was standing, heat treating, and I don't know if any of you know what heat treating is, the end of valves. But heat treating means something goes red hot. So the, the little piece of steel, it goes red hot through electrical current, red hot. And then it moves around on a rotating thing and oil gets squirted on that red hot thing and that oil makes the, makes the thing that was red hot really hard. So heat treating, they do it for horseshoes and everything. They, they red hot them and they stick them in a bucket of water. But in this case, it's squirted oil. And so each night working in this factory, I would go home and I would lie in the bed at night after having many showers and I would leave the thing like Jesus left on a piece of cloth. I would leave a template of my body on the thing. The oil was soaking in. And I worked there on this production line making ends meet for six bloody months. But in that six months, I was working um, uh, at lunchtime and afternoon tea. I was hanging out with people in the lunchroom that I was frightened of, big, tough men. And I'm not a big, tough guy, but these were real hands-on Geelong, real, real worker men. And they were of all nationalities. And I kind of like got, I don't know, I got something that I'd never had in my life before. I really got my hands dirty with real people in real lunchroom and real experience with people who were working in bloody, bloody awful jobs. Production, repetition, 3,000 valves a day. I used to lift one valve, stick it in the machine, take the, clean, the oil valve off and put it in another bucket. That was my job, nothing else. Lift, push, lift. Wasn't hard, it was just monotonous, monotonous. And I worked with these people for six months. And in that period of time, I joined the Cario Bay Rowing Club and I started rowing and I loved rowing. So down at the rowing club, straight after work, down in the car, do rowing up and down the river. Meanwhile, I applied for a job and a company was called Hike, H-U-Y-C-K. Hike Felt, and that was at Felmungers Road Breakwater. And I went to the Hike Felt, and I, I joined this company, and I was going to be a, a maintenance engineer. That's right, maintenance engineer for Hike Felt. Within about six months of joining the firm, they said, congratulations, you've been, uh, you're, you're doing really well, you're going to America. So they packed me up, and I left Australia for the first time in my life, and I went to live in Greenville, Tennessee. In Greenville, Tennessee, it's the boonies. I'm talking about guns on the back of cars. I'm talking about pickup trucks. I'm talking about rough and rough and rough and rough and rough. I'm talking about redneck country, boonies they call it, Daniel Boone country. And I went to Greenville, Tennessee. I got off the aeroplane in America. They gave the rental car. It was a white Mustang with a red stripe down the front. And here I am in Tri-City, uh, Tennessee, Tri-Cities in Tennessee, sitting in a rent car, wrong side of the road, and it's a Trans Am Mustang, white with a red stripe, 
and I'm gunning it down freeways. Just jet lagged, but in frickin' paradise. I arrived, my booking was at Hotel 8, Motel 8. Now, if you go around America, if you look at any movie in, about America and, you, and, the, and the people are hiding, the criminals are hiding, or someone's hiding a little bit out of town on that sketchy part of town, Motel 8's always there. And I went into this place and the door fell off as I walked in. It was a shitty, smelly, smoky, dirty, gungy place down the bottom of a hill. It was swampy. And that's where I started my new life, three months. And while I was away in Greenville, Tennessee, they traveled me all over the US, especially to Albany, New York. Uh, I went across to North Carolina and studied over there. I had I had an experience. I, I actually went to New York and stayed on Broadway on the way to Albany, New York. And I stayed in a little apartment over the top of one of the theaters in Broadway and because that's all I could afford. And this room was the size of my toilet right now. I, I was tw 23 or 4 years old and I'm living this life that's incomprehensible. And back in those days, you didn't ring home. So what inevitably happened is one night, crazy night, I went with a group of people from the company, both of the couple that took me uh, wanted to shag me the whole time, but I didn't realise that was their thing. They were into to spinning, what they call it, mixing couples, and I didn't realise that, um, and so I didn't do it. But uh, uh, the reason they were engaging me a lot was because they wanted me to stay over. And the third, fourth person in the car was Rose Rubley. Rose in in Greenville, Tennessee, was at the reception of the company that I, I worked for, and Rose came with us. So we went up into the, into the hills, dark, dark, deep, dark into the hills, it's midnight, and we get to this, this hay shed, and there's probably 200 people, and they're drinking moonshine, and these people uh, don't have teeth, and it's, uh, there's a band playing, two of which were from Australia, and so I got up and played and danced with the band and we had this walkers drunken, crazy night and come down the hill, we all had to stop the car and roll naked in the creek to sort of stay uh, awake enough. I got home and I, and I, had, uh, uh, I slept with Rose and my marriage was finished just so early in its, in its history. I had to keep a lie from my partner for the rest of my life and we had three kids after that. It was really a life-changing moment. And I can say, geez, that was a thing. But the good thing, there's a gift coming. I had three beautiful children. I lived independently. I still kept. And then I got the job when I got back to hike from this uh, three months in the US. I got the job of Asian engineer. So I, I would every single six weeks for five years go from Geelong to Melbourne by aeroplane, from Melbourne to Sydney usually, catch the Bali flight, over to Bali, fly into Denpasar, spend three days at Kuta having a ball, then get a car uh, with a driver and drive to Gilamanuk, which was at the other end of Bali, get from Gilamanuk to Ujum Pandang, and then uh, from Gilamanuk to Salibis to um, Bromo, the volcano, then go to uh, uh, Gesica, which is where they made asbestos cement, then into Surabaya, then fly up to Jogjakarta, then up into Ujum Pandang, then to Maidan, then to Jakarta, then to Singapore, then to Kuala Lumpur, then to Penang, then to from Penang back to Kuala Lumpur, then up to Hong Kong, then down into Thailand, then uh, through the Philippines, then back to Singapore, then back to Jakarta, then back to Denpasar, then back to Sydney, six weeks.
oh, every single day working in paper factories. One day I took my brother on the trip and instead of going on the trip, I, I, I left, he came to Denpasar, introduced him to Bali, he'd never left the country before. I went on, did the trip. When he finished in Bali, I went back to Bali for a weekend, picked him up and we flew up to Singapore and there's my expense report, not saying I'm going back to Denpasar, but saying I'm going Jakarta to Singapore. And boom, I walk into a, a shop, a 7-Eleven in Singapore, and there's the general manager of the company that I work for in Melbourne. Oh, bad luck, really? So I go back, to, uh, I finish the trip. My brother decides from that day to pack up his bag, and he never came back to Australia again. He never came, he went, came back, packed his bag, left. And that trip opened him up and he's been in Asia ever since, living in Singapore and Japan and now Bangkok. He never came back. That's his luck. And I came back and I got fired. The, 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 general, the CEO of the business who I'd met in the, in the shop, he said, your expense report shows you going from individual. And I said, look, I'm not going to lie. My expense report is the truth. I went back to Denpasar, picked up my brother on the weekend and came. He says, well, you need to falsify your expense report because that's not, you know, and I said, I'm not going to do it. And they fired me. While I was away on that trip, my wife, Judy, bought a house. And we looked around and she bought a house. We'd sold out. She bought one. She's pregnant. We had a little baby. She's pregnant with our next one. She bought a house. It was a burnt out house in East Geelong, burnt down. And the only place that we could live was in part of the burnt out house, which we, we'd, we, which we moved into. And so for the next immediate period, I had no job, a burnt out house, uh, kid on the way, I'm in deep shit. So I'm walking down the street in Geelong the next day, that was Friday, the next day I'm walking down the street in Geelong. We've got a burnt out house, we've got to move out of our old place, we've paved as much as we can, we've got a mortgage to pay, We've got this burnout thing. We've got one car, an old Volkswagen thing that used to break down because that was our second car and because uh, I had to give the company car back. I'm walking down the street. Who do I bump into? Ron Purvis, the general manager from Sly when I was at uni. I go, hey, Ron, how you doing? He goes, oh, really good. I, I'm working for a company called Industrial Sheet Metal out of uh, North Melbourne. And I go, shit, well, how's that? And he goes, oh, we've just uh, got the German franchise for Lua, L Hill HR. Uh, a, a bag filter company just like we used to do at Sly. It was exactly like that. And I said, air pollution control? Wow. And, and a new German technology says, the technology is fantastic. He says, what we're desperate for is a guy to do sales. And I said, well, I just lost my job yesterday. He says, your job. That's immediate. No interview, nothing. He says, your job. I know you. I know what you can do. And you're great, great at sales. Your job. So from, that, from the Monday of that week, I started driving to old clunky VW, dropping Judy at the kindergarten, driving to old clunky VW up to Melbourne to do the job, and they gave me a company car. That stopped. So I drove from Geelong to Melbourne working for industrial sheet metal. As time went on, we, we built more and more bag filters, and we built more and more industrial things, and we got more and more successful. And over the next 12 months, the company grew and grew and grew until old Mr Hicks, who owned industrial sheet metal, started getting sick from all the stress, from all the size of it. And then he started getting a bit stupid. And Ron, uh, instead of managing the business properly, Ron started producing stock, sheets, you know, the sheet metal factory, filling up the factory with production, 
so that we could sell more bag filters, but we didn't sell enough to fill the production, so the company ran out of money. It went into $500,000 worth of debt. So I jumped on an aeroplane, I flew to Germany, never done it before. I flew to Germany and I met the people whose license uh, Mr. Hicks and Ron had got, and I said, I can pay that $500,000 back if you give me two years. Two years, I'll pay it back. And they said, right, and they signed a piece of paper. I flew back, took over the company. I took over industrial sheet metal that I worked for. And I took over, not anything positive, I took over all the machines, all the people, all the factory, all the engineering, um, with $500,000 in debt. I was up to my ears. I borrowed $20,000 from the bank, moved in, fired Ron. Bad luck, Ron. You're a dick. Mr. Hicks, stay home. I fired some people. I sold off some things. I um, took all the stock that Ron had made, everything that was saleable, and made a fire sale. And I, and I made $50,000 out of the fire sale, which was enough money to fund the relaunch of the whole business. I moved into an office in North Melbourne. Um, I can't remember exactly where. And I started to uh, reduce the amount of space we needed at the sheet metal factory. And then we eventually found a factory out at, um, at uh, uh, out past Nunawadding somewhere. Anyway, right past uh, Anne's place. And we moved to this big, beautiful factory. And bit by bit, we started to build an enormous business. And with that enormous business, I paid back the debt in six months. I paid 500000 back to the Germans in six months and then started flying backwards and forwards to Germany to get to know the business and get to know all this. So what I'm telling you this story, I'm going to stop here, but why I'm telling you this story is I'm a lucky fucker. And any one of these situations, any one of these situations we got into were suicide-worthy, were death-worthy, were disaster-worthy, were stress-worthy. But you know what? I never for a minute got into a state of uh, overwhelming stress. Firstly, I had sport and I loved running and gym and exercise and training and rowing and all these things. By the way, I ended up rowing for Australia and winning an Australian championship and getting selected in a squad to go to Olympics, which I had to say no to in the end because of children and stuff. And boom, all of this. So life has a, a way of if you can just go through the tough times, life has a way of proving that you're a really lucky fucker. I have had a picture in my head since I was a little kid of, uh, uh, not Superman, but like it, it, the person is a broke, it's called Broken Arrow. It's a cowboy and Indian movie about a cat, an Indian who lives in the, uh, American Indian who lives in the, the desert and comes in to rescue people and help people. And, and, and I've had a dream that that's, that's the picture I've had. That's the cartoon that I've played over and over in my mind. And you know what? Through all the air pollution, all the businesses, all the failures, all the successes, all the travel, all the three years going to Asia, helping, helping, helping people build um, paper factories out of rice straw, make, make paper out of rice straw, build paper factories. All of that has always had the one theme, and that is to help people open their heart and look good. And so, in a sense, the, the, the boundaries of the story, the edges of the river, have been unknowable. I don't know where the walls are. Sometimes I fall off the boat and I, I have to just 
trust the river is going to take me down. Sometimes I've known and I've made choices like buying the business and selling the business and getting divorced and not getting divorced. Sometimes I've made choices along the way. But a lot of it, I've had to go with the flow. I've had to accept that you can't control everything. But I've always felt lucky. I've always felt like Broken Arrow or Superman or whatever character I wanted to immortalise myself in was going to be able to help the world, help other people. I've always had a sense of purpose bigger than my life, my little uh, dunghill, even when I was rowing, even when I was depressed, even when I was frustrated, even when I was uh, annoyed at things. So I'm not trying to tell you this story to make myself sound big or small. I'm just telling you a story through a lens. And you can tell your story through any lens you want. You can tell it through a hard luck story. You can tell it through a, a good luck story. You can tell it through a story that says... You were in control of every single step of your life, but you're not. And I think the lens through which we want to tell our story to the world is through the lucky fucker story, through the lucky fucker lens. My God. When I was in New York, I looked out the window one morning on 9-11 and aeroplane straight into a wall. And 3,000 people perished in that building. People ran into it and died from running into it. More people died than were necessary to die. People jumped off the building because of the flames. It was so hot, they'd rather suicide than burn to death. Not one single person of all those people that I watched die, I watched the building come on top of them. Not one single person woke up in the morning saying, jeez, I'm going to die today. But they walked into that building. And on their tombstone, somehow, somehow, through the lens of lucky fucker, somebody has to say, that person was lucky. And their family was lucky. And their journey was lucky. Maybe they were lucky to, to survive that long. Maybe they were lucky to be part of something. You know, I'm not going to pretend on this particular thing to tell someone else's story. I know you've got to see your own story through a lens. And that's a day-to-day -day lens. Starts with how you wake up, starts with how you go to bed. I think the most important thing to take away from this 34 minutes of podcast is this. When you get stressed, every single moment you're in stress is killing you. 90% of people on this planet die from stress. Only 10% die of old age. So every single minute you spend stressed is a minute less you've got to live. So the question you have to ask yourself over and over again, greatest question on earth is, is it worth dying for? And if you're stressed about it, you're saying yes. If you're stressed about doing your work for the office, you're saying it's worth dying for. So you're basically saying, I'm happy to walk into the World Trade Center and come down with it to do my work. If it's worth being stressed, it's worth dying for. Are you stressed about uh, the weather? Well, is it worth dying for? Are you stressed about the children in the house making noise? 
Are you stressed about the kid knocking over the Ming vase? Is it worth dying for? Are you stressed about buying a new house? Are you stressed about a new job? If the answer is yes, then it's worth dying for because that stress is killing you. There is nothing more guaranteed than that fact. And the antidote to stress is the helicopter mind, which looks above things. But if you go in that helicopter and look above things without saying, I'm a lucky fucker, if you look, go in that helicopter and say, I'm going to be cold and just be a cold leader and disconnect from the thing, be detached from the thing I'm doing without being thankful, without being saying, I'm a lucky fucker, without appreciating it, without saying, my partner's in trauma, I'm not going to step in because I'm thankful that they're in trauma. My partner's having stress. I'm thankful that they're having stress and therefore I don't have to interrupt. Unless you step away from something with lucky fucker mindset, it's cold. It's cold blue. It's like those leadership programs. I saw one the other day from a company, cold blue metal. That's their proposition. Let's teach you how to be leaders here, but let's take the senses, let's take smell, taste, touch, feel, uh, sight out of the equation and let's talk to you how to lead people, lead people. When the sensory aspect goes out of a relationship and you say, I, I respect my partner's position to get through this, I'm not going to interfere, I'm not going to reach in and weaken them by helping them. If you do that without saying, I'm thankful that they're going through that, then you've turned cold. And cold is just really the dark. Lucky fucker is the op opposite. Lucky fucker is warm. It's sensory, it's sensual. In a relationship with another person at work, if you don't look at them and say, I'm a lucky fucker for having employed this person, I'm a lucky fucker for having them here, you're cold. And if your partner if you don't say, I'm a lucky fucker for not being involved in my partner's work or not, I'm a lucky fucker because my partner's stressed, I'm a lucky fucker because my partner's worried about something. If you don't intervene, which is really healthy, but you don't say it by saying lucky fucker, you've turned cold. And the intimacy, it should come as a replacement for interference in someone else's life. The intimacy and connectedness and the spiritual awakening that comes from being disconnected from someone's life, detached from someone's life, but having love in lo your own life is gone. It becomes cold. <laughs>